So my daughter, Abigail, she's 22 months old, and at this point in her life, her favorite word is no. Actually, let me rephrase that. Her favorite word to say is no. No, Judah. No, Clara. No, Chloe. And even no, Mommy. No, Daddy. Her favorite word to say is no, but she hates to hear the word no. She hates to be told no. She'll even cry sometimes if you tell her no, because Abigail, again, is only 22 months old, and she has yet to learn the lesson that she is not in charge. At only 22 months old, she has yet to learn the lesson that she has to submit to authority. And so as her parents, Han and I, are constantly having to tell her, Abigail, you don't say no to mommy or daddy. Say yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. You have to obey. It's a tough lesson for Abigail. And if we're honest, it's a tough lesson for us. If we're 22 months old or 22 years old or 122 years old, this is a tough lesson for all of us to realize, to come to grips with the fact that we are not in charge, that we do not have authority. We like authority when we have it, but we don't like authority when we don't have it. And even when that authority figure over us is good, we don't like to obey. Even when the authority figure over us is God, let's be honest, we don't like being told what to do. Human beings have been challenging authority, specifically God's authority over our lives ever since Genesis chapter 3. And here in Mark chapter 11 and 12, we come to a yet another example of human beings challenging the authority of God over their life. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12 as we take a look at Mark 11, 27 through 12, 12. And here's what we're going to do together this morning, a little bit different than what we normally do. First, number one on your outline, we're going to take a look at the text here, Mark 11, 27 to 12, 12. And we're going to see this story in the Gospel of Mark, how the religious leaders were challenging God's authority over their life then. Number two on your outline, we're then going to take a step back and see how human beings, we have been challenging God's authority over our life from the very beginning. We've always been doing this. And then number three on your outline, we'll see how we, even we followers of Christ today, even here and now, continue to challenge God's authority over our lives. So again, grab your Bible Follow along with me. Number one on your outline, challenging God's authority. Then Mark chapter 11, first verse 27. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. John Mark tells us this. They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now let's pause right here and just reestablish the context for a moment. Remember now, for quite some time, Jesus has been traveling on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross to lay down his life for your sins and for mine. We've been seeing this now over and over again in the last few chapters in the Gospel of Mark. 
So once again, we we're told in verse 27, once again, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Once again, Jesus comes to the temple. And on this occasion, when Jesus comes to the temple, notice he's confronted. We read in verse 27 that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These three groups of men made up the group called the Sanhedrin. Really the the group in Jerusalem at this time that had the highest authority. It was a group of 71 men ruled over by the high priest made up of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they had ultimate authority over all religious matters in Jerusalem and in the temple. In other words, these were the guys who were in charge. They had all the authority, or so they thought. But notice verse 28. These men, they come to Jesus, they confront Jesus, verse 28, Mark eleven twenty-eight, 28, and We're told they began saying to him, to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Notice the repetition of the word authority. They asked Jesus, who gave you the authority to do these things? The these things they're talking about is what we saw last week. Remember last week, Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. So they saw Jesus do that, the purification of the temple, and now they come to Jesus and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And authority was a big deal in the climate of this particular culture, especially religious authority. For religious teachers, they would often be asked, okay, who is your rabbi? By whose authority are you teaching these things and saying these things? It was all about authority. You had to have the right credentials. And so this is what they come to Jesus wanting to know. By whose authority are you here? If I could paraphrase their question. They say to Jesus, well, who died and put you in charge? Who do you think you are? What makes you think that you have authority. And so notice Jesus' reply, verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now notice once again the repetition of the word authority. This passage is all about authority. And by the way, the Greek word for authority means, you guessed it, authority. <laughs> it's describing the guy who's in charge. They come to Jesus with this question of authority and then Jesus turns the tables on them. He does something brilliant here. He uses this rhetorical technique that was common of the rabbis of the day, this counter-questioning technique. He says, okay, you ask me a question, I'm going to ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll answer your question. And again, it all revolves around this concept of authority. 
So Jesus asked them, he says, okay, by whose authority, I'm paraphrasing here, by, who, by whose authority did John the Baptist baptize? Was his authority from heaven, from God, or was his authority from men? This is the question that Jesus wants to know. It's all about authority. But notice that the religious leaders find a way to back out of the question, verse 31. They begin reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So notice the religious leaders now realize that they're trapped. Jesus asked them the question, by whose authority did John the Baptist baptize? Was it heavenly authority or earthly authority? Was it authority from God or authority from men? And they realize here they're trapped because if they say from heaven, then Jesus will ask them, why did you not believe him? Because they rejected John the Baptist. So if they admit that John the Baptist came with heavenly authority, then they are self-incriminating themselves by admitting that they rejected God's messenger. But on the other hand, if they say, no, John the Baptist wasn't sent with heavenly authority, he was just a man, then they realize that they put themselves in the bad graces of the people because the people loved John the Baptist. The people considered John the Baptist a prophet. So they're in, caught between a rock and a hard place here. And so notice what they do, verse 33, they take the easy way out. Mark chapter 11, verse 33, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Once again, notice it's all about authority. Trying to figure out who's in charge. Who gets to call the shots. Now, what Jesus does next is really interesting. Jesus, starting in Mark chapter 12, verse 1, he begins to tell the religious leaders a story, a parable. This is unique because usually Jesus uses parables to uh, speak to his disciples or to mixed audiences of potential followers of Jesus. But here he tells this parable specifically to the religious leaders who have now rejected his authority. Notice what he says, Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them, to the religious leaders in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Let's pause right here. So again, remember a parable is simply a story. And Jesus here tells a story of, he's actually drawing upon Isaiah chapter 5. One of the things I want you to do later this week, I've listed it on the back side of your outline, is to read Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah's parable of the vineyard, and discover what you can learn about Jesus's parable here of the vineyard by comparing it with Isaiah's parable of the vineyard. But the parable that Jesus tells here, again, it's, it's just a story. It's a very common story. It was very common in the first century Israel for especially wealthy landowners 
to lease part of their land to tenant farmers. And these tenant farmers would plant in, in, uh, in the field and they would harvest the crop. And then occasionally the landowner would send a representative to the tenant farmer, farmers and they would pay a portion of that crop as payment for the land. This lease arrangement was very popular in the first century Israel. It's a pretty simple story, but take a look at what happens starting in verse 2. At the harvest time, he, the landowner, sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers, again, as compensation for their ability to lease the land. But notice what happens, verse 3. They took him, the slave, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. When you're studying parables, it's helpful to look for the surprising twist in the story. And this is the twist right here. In this everyday scenario that would have been common in ancient Israel, the surprising twist is that now when the landowner sends slaves to collect payment, notice the tenant farmers beat and kill those slaves. This is the ultimate rejection of the landowner's authority over the land and over them. These slaves who were sent to the tenant farmers were acting under the authority of the landowner. However, the tenant farmers rejected and even killed these slaves. But the story isn't over. Notice verse 6. Verse 6, in this parable, Jesus says, He, the landowner, had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now this is the ultimate rejection of the landowner's authority. They see coming the heir the son of the landowner, and they see him coming from a distance and notice they begin conspiring together and say, if we kill him, then the land will be ours. As a bit of background, it was customary in these days and it was permissible that if a particular piece of land um, had no owner, then the rights of that land would go over to the person who claimed it first. And so here, drawing upon that law, these tenant farmers assume that the landowner has died, and they now say, well, if we kill the landowner's son, then we can lay our claim to the land and take it as ours. It's a dark story. So what is Jesus' point? Notice verse, 20, uh, verse 9. Mark chapter 12, verse 9. He asks the religious leaders, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Here Jesus asks the question, inviting the religious leaders into the issue of what should be done with these 
wicked tenant farmers. Over in the Gospel of Matthew, we read specifically they agree with Jesus' statement here. They agree that the wicked tenant farmers should be killed, destroyed, and the vineyard should be given over to others. Now, the fascinating thing about Jesus' parable here, especially when you read it in light of Isaiah chapter 5, what we discover is that the vineyard is representative of Israel and that the tenant farmers are these religious leaders. That obviously the son is Jesus himself. And so if you compare this with what we saw last week, remember last week we saw Jesus say that ultimately the temple is being rejected. And here this week we see that now the religious leaders are also being rejected. And then Jesus takes it to the next level in verse 10. Notice what he says in verses 10 and 11 to these Wicked tenant farmers, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, Mark chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, he says to them, have you not even read this scripture? Which that phrase in and of itself would have been offensive to them because they are supposed to know the scripture, right? Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, notice the word rejected, This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Again, notice the word rejected. This is about the authority of Jesus and the rejection of the authority of Jesus. Here, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118, which is interestingly the exact same psalm that the crowds recite at the triumphal entry we read last week. But here Jesus quotes Psalm 118, highlighting the rejection, but also the vindication of the Son of God. Again, Jesus is clearly the beloved Son in the parable, and he's clearly the rejected stone that becomes the chief cornerstone here in Psalm 118. And this rejected stone that the religious leaders right now are rejecting the authority of Jesus Verse 11, this comes about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. This cornerstone becomes the most important stone of all. So what is Jesus doing here? Let's take a step back and ask, okay, why is Jesus doing this? What is it about this confrontation he's having here with these religious leaders? Ultimately, what I believe Jesus is doing here is this is one last appeal he is making to them highlighting the rejection of him that they're about to do, plotting his death, and inviting them to consider the serious consequences of their actions. This is one last plea, if you will, Jesus is making with them to realize what it is they're doing. They're rejecting the Son of God. They're rejecting his authority, and consequences will be guaranteed to follow. But instead of listening to his warning. Notice their reply, verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him 
and went away. They picked up on the fact that Jesus was talking about them. They picked up on the fact that here, Psalm 118, the Word of God is convicting them. But instead of listening to the Word of God, instead they try to seize him, ultimately to kill him. And they we're told once again, we've seen this a number of times in the Gospel of Mark, though they're afraid. They're afraid because of Jesus' popularity with the people. But as you take a step back and look at Mark 11 and 12, our verses here this morning, again, this really does revolve all around this issue of authority. The religious leaders thought that they had authority. They thought that they were the ones in charge, but theirs was a delegated authority. They were like the tenant farmers. The land wasn't theirs. The authority they had had just been delegated to them by the landowner, by God himself. And now God is sending one more person. He had sent the prophets of old, and now he's sending his son to tell them once again, to warn them once again, but instead of listening once again, the warnings of God fall on deaf ears, and so their authority will be taken away. This passage is all about authority, and as we think about all the authority that we've seen from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, as we take a step back and review the authority of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. Just remember, Jesus has, throughout the Gospel of Mark, been demonstrating his authority. He's been demonstrating the fact that he's the Son of God, that he ultimately is the one in charge. He has authority over his teaching. He has authority over disease and sickness. He has authority even over death. He has authority to forgive sins. The religious leaders have seen all the evidence they need to convince them of who Jesus is, and yet here they ultimately reject him. Like I said earlier, the rejection of God's authority is sadly nothing new, but we as human beings have been challenging and rejecting God's authority all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and so for just a few moments, I want to take a look at number two on your outline and review how we have been challenging and rejecting God's authority all along. It's not just the religious leaders here in Mark 11 and 12 that challenge God's authority, but we've been doing it from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the challenging of God's authority, the questioning of God's authority. In Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, we see rather than spreading out over the earth and being fruitful and multiply and building a name for God, instead the people gathered together in one land and built a name for themselves. It's an ultimate challenging and rejection of God's authority. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God send prophet after prophet after prophet, and time and time again, the people of Israel reject God's authority. Sadly, this rejection of God's authority is nothing new. Even in the future, when we, in a few years, study the book of Revelation, one of the things we'll see is that in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus is ruling and reigning from the throne of David in Israel, even then, when Jesus is ruling and reigning with complete truth and justice, there will be people who reject the authority of Jesus even then. Throughout all time in human history, 
human beings have been striving for basic moral autonomy. We, like Abigail, say no. Don't tell me what to do, even to God. The lie that we have believed all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 is that we can be our own God and not suffer the consequences. We are rebels at heart. In fact, one of the words for sin in the Old and New Testament, you could translate as rebellion. Rebellion. Sin ultimately is a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against God's authority. Sin snubs God and says, no, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. This becomes obvious, again, with little kids, right? Even as little kids, you tell them, hey, don't touch that. And they look you in the eye, touch it anyway. (laughs) Or you see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. And what do we do? We touch it just to check, just to make sure. And we draw a little bit of pleasure from our mere rebellion, don't we? We all do. But here in Mark chapter 11 and chapter 12, it forces us to ask ourselves the question, will we respond to Jesus' claims of authority over our lives? Or will we, like the religious leaders, reject his authority in favor of our own agenda? It's all about authority and who's in charge. The passage here in Mark chapter 11 and 12, the story of authority, reminds me of a famous story uh, from Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, a a chapter entitled The Grand Inquisitor, which is the title of our uh, sermon this morning. Uh, This particular chapter, it's a story within the story of the Brothers Karamazov, and it's a story about uh, Jesus returning to earth during the 16th century in Spain. And Jesus returns to earth and he does the many miracles that he did in his first advent. He heals people, he teaches, and the crowds love him. But the surprise of the Grand Inquisitor comes when the Catholic cardinal, the guy in charge, has Jesus arrested. And in this chapter, the Grand Inquisitor, we come to realize why this particular cardinal had Jesus arrested and why he refuses to allow Jesus to keep doing his ministry. And I'm not going to spoil the chapter for you, but it all comes down to the issue of authority. Dostoevsky shows that that, uh, ultimately the Catholic Church came in and they ripped the freedom that Jesus gave to people away and instead gave them what they thought they wanted Uh, which is uh, comfort. I'm not going to ruin ultimately the story for you. You should read it for yourself. But at the end, the Grand Inquisitor tells Jesus to leave and to never return again. It's an amazing story, and it begs the question of you and of me, if Jesus were to come back today, like in the Grand Inquisitor, how would we respond? 
Would we accept his authority over our life? Or would we say no? And like the religious leaders in Mark 11 and 12, like the Grand Inquisitor of Dostoevsky's, the Grand uh, Brothers Karamazov, would we tell him to leave? Would we welcome him? Or would we turn him away? I would submit to you as we look at number three on your outline that at least part of us would tell him to leave. Because as human beings, we saw the religious leaders challenge Jesus' authority then. As human beings, we've been challenging God's authority always. And you and I, even today, challenge God's authority now. Let's take a look at number three on your outline. So we think about applying a passage like this. When we're confronted with the authority of Jesus and the evidence of who Jesus is, the first question I have to ask you is really, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Before we talk about following him in obedience and submitting to him, first we have to talk about, do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Have you put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Again, as you take a step back and look at Jesus' authority throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's demonstrated his authority in his teaching. He's demonstrated his authority over sickness and disease. And he's demonstrated his authority over the ability to forgive people our sins. And so let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins? Remember, this is the entire reason Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross to lay down his life for you and for me. And he and he alone is the only one who has the authority to say, to declare that your sins are forgiven. Because of his work on the cross, because of his resurrection, because of his conquering of sin and death, he and he alone is the one who has authority to forgive sins. And this forgiveness comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. So, here in this room and those watching online, I want to ask you if you've Put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. If so, you can know with certainty that you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are made right and reconciled with the holy God. Not because of any authority you have of yourself, but only through the authority of the resurrected Son of God. Now, if you have a relationship with Jesus... The second question I have for you, and really the main point of our passage this morning, is to ask yourself, how do I, even today, challenge the authority of God over my life? We don't challenge God's authority over our life, do we? No, not us. We can just pack up our Bibles and go home. But actually, that's what we often do, right? Right? We open up the scripture, maybe you hear a sermon or you listen to a Christian podcast, and I do it too. We're confronted with the authority of God and the word of God, and we close our Bibles and pack it up and go home because we'd rather just do it our way. Again, we read our Bible, we hear a sermon, we listen to a Christian podcast, the word of God convicts us, lays something on our heart. But then we reason ourselves out of obedience and we say no. 
Back to my daughter, Abigail. One of her favorite words to say is, no. Another favorite word of hers is, mine. (laughs) Mine. She sees things that she wants, and she makes claim over them and says, mine, even though sometimes, often, they're not actually hers. There's a great statement by theologian Abraham Kuyper who said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. But his claims are legitimate. Truly, everything we are and everything we have is his. We are not our own, Paul says, but we have been bought with a price. And so we're called to glorify him with our bodies and with our lives. But like Abigail, we often think that our life is ours. Like Abigail, we don't like being told what to do. No, mine, we far too often say. But again, the truth is, and what I hope you see, is that our life is his. We are not our own. And this Jesus, who has legitimate claims of authority over our lives, calls us to respond in obedience to his word. This Jesus, who has legitimate authority over us, has the right to tell us what to do. So there on the back side of your outline, your one thing for this week is this, your application. I want you to take a few moments and think back through our study in the Gospel of Mark. We have been bombarded with the evidence of Jesus' authority. And I want you to ask yourself, is there something specific that God has laid on your heart? What has, have you been challenged by? Have you challenged his authority or delayed your obedience in some call of Jesus over your life? And then ask yourself, what step of obedience right now is Jesus inviting you to take? Obey, don't rebel. Say yes, don't say no, Abigail. Again, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen evidence after evidence after evidence of Jesus' authority. We see, we've seen his invitation to follow after him with our money and our possessions, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our worship. We've seen the call to follow after him in humility and service, serving others. So think back through our entire study of the Gospel of Mark and ask yourself, in what way Have you, again, perhaps delayed obedience or challenged his authority? Mark chapter 11 and 12 would invite you once again to obey, don't rebel, to say yes and don't say no. Would you pray with me? Father, we do confess that far more often than we like to admit, we like to exert our own authority. Far too often, even as Followers of Jesus, far too often we are confronted with your word, we're convicted by your spirit, and we say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. Father, help us to see here in this passage the dangerous consequences of disobedience and rejecting the authority of Christ over our life. And instead, Father, by your spirit, I pray that you would Convince us all of the sweetness of obedience, of following after Jesus and doing it his way. 
Father, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you that, as your word says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we humbly ask you, Father, that you would empower us by your spirit to live for you as we live obediently to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.